So, this is our last class before Christmas. I'm very um, extremely grateful that we had the thought to teach this class. It was a fairly obvious thought. Swami brings a book out about Christ and Christmas comes and it's a natural pairing. But the experience for me of having to read this book with the kind of attention necessary to be able to then present something creative to you, of course, is a wonderful discipline. Um, And there's also a certain grace that always comes into it. The idea of teaching Swamiji's books came to me a number of years ago. If you go into our boutique or onto our website, you'll see that I've done quite a lot of these. When he wrote, actually, The Hindu Way of Awakening, and I was struggling desperately through para-prakriti and prakriti and para-para-apara-prakriti or whatever the words are. I'm not very good at it. And it occurred to me that uh, probably it was just as hard for everybody else as it was for me and that it would serve us all to work together to really understand what these books mean. I had no idea what the blessing was going to be for me in doing it. There's a lot of um, subtle reasons for this and it really has to do with these last chapters of the books in, in, in the way of Swamiji's writing and this book is a notable one in that way. It's sort of like at the end of the book the whole intention of what he's doing kind of comes to a, a focus. Um, it's sort of like he's laid out all his reasonings and then he finally, I don't want to use the word, closes the trap. That would be a, a bad way to put it but I know when I was reading Out of the Labyrinth, which is Swamiji's attempt to argue that the very same evidence that... My voice sounds echoey to me. Does it sound echoey to all of you? Maybe it's a little too loud, Joe. It's a little disconcerting to me. Um, That book is an attempt to express to people, actually not dissimilar to this one, how a lot of what scientific evidence that seems to argue against the existence of God could actually be interpreted... To, to prove the existence of God. And he goes very methodically through a lot of the nihilistic philosophers like Sartre and others and kind of builds this case. And there's a point about, maybe about five-eighths of the way through that book or a little farther, where you just almost hear Swami between the lines saying, aha, gotcha. You know, it's like the whole thing suddenly, you realize if you've been following his logic that it all comes together. Well, not all of you I know in this room are, are committed to Yogananda's path and you know we're different, different, different people in this room, but there is a great and powerful force that has been created by this particular line of masters. We've been talking about it for three weeks. And Swami Kriyananda is an instrument of that particular divine expression. Swami, of course, the author of this book. And all of us who find ourselves between these four walls in one way or another have some karmic relationship with what um, Swamiji is doing, either a deep one or a casual one. But there's a, a certain innate power in it, just in the same way that Jesus spoke. And this is one of the things that's discussed in this chapter. You know, Jesus died to save the world, to save us all. There's a special dispensation, a special kind of power that comes through these masters and all those who receive it will receive it. And those who don't, don't. Because there's no imposition 
from the divine on us. If we choose not to learn, we have all the freedom in the world not to learn. Even when Jesus was living, you, you find many times in the Bible, he says, uh, those who have ears to hear. I mean, it, it was his rather colorful way of saying, not all of you really have a clue as to what I'm saying, but for those who do, you know, listen up. This is deep. This is true. He was also telling them that it, what he was saying was not necessarily obvious. And the whole cycle of the way this planet is guided is, is the story of Sanatana Dharma. And that's what Swamiji is trying to explain from page one of this book to the last page of this book, that Jesus's life and teaching fit into a cosmic pattern that is much bigger than the little field of Christianity that the churches have staked out as their own. You know, it just, it, we have to just make these distinctions between religion and spirituality. Um, I was on a radio program this morning for the book I wrote about Swamiji. You do these radio interviews and all these satellite um, and internet stations, you know, so there's hundreds of people filling the airs with words. Um, and this gentleman just sort of, you know, tentatively spoke about religion versus spirituality. And that, of course, is the entire point. Religion is an effort by the human mind to translate into terms that are closer to our actual experience, something that actually requires us to transcend our experience in order to understand. So religions can be very helpful because they do give us a, a focal point, a way to come together, a group energy. And for many people whose, whose minds may not be that subtle, or who, who need the assurance of authority telling them that they're on the right path, who haven't yet necessarily developed an entirely self-directed relationship with their own spirituality, religion can be very helpful. But there just comes a point where we have to understand that religion is just a means to an end, and the means is our own self-realization. The means is what Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect as our Father in heaven who is perfect. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were outraged with Jesus because he, he just stepped so far outside the systems they had developed. He was a Jewish rabbi himself, and they sort of had a deal. They were a religion. They had it all worked out. Moses, as we've discussed in here, was an avatar. He was a fully realized master. What he brought was spirituality. But then he helped them even. The, the masters often even helped their disciples turn their completely free teaching into some kind of a religion because they understand that's the only way it'll ever last, especially as we're talking about here when the age on the planet was descending. But the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were just outraged because Jesus just kicked aside all their carefully constructed definitions and rules and behaviors and he just declared that this was a, a, a new reality, and the new reality, and he asserted his own personal right to do that, you know, as the son of the father, as the anointed of God, all these different things that he did. Swamiji points out in here that the particular mission, the personality required to be an avatar at that time to those people, where there was a tremendous force, you know, the Jewish religion has always had 
and it's its strength also. It always has this extremely strong, determined commitment to its own ideas, and no um, teacher could come into that mildly and just sort of oh, say, oh, by the way, perhaps we should redirect it. Maybe there's something else we could do. What do you say, fellas? You know, there was just no chance of that. It had to be, you know, a force that met the force that existed. And then Swami, so Swamiji, and, and he had to speak, Swami also writes, that there was a tremendous amount of interest among the Jewish people at that time in spiritual teaching. You know, there, wasn't, there was not only Jesus, there was also John the Baptist, and there were a number of other people baptizing, is how they described it. That was the, the tradition of baptizing. But there were many different people baptizing in the name of Jesus, baptizing in the name of others. There were people possessed of devils. There was just a lot happening. And the way Swami explains it, if Jesus had been any less absolute in the way he presented his teaching and any less definite about the fact that this isn't just a general teaching, but this is something that I am delivering and you have to relate to me about it, um, it would not have been implanted with the force that it was implanted. You know, there's a, a cosmic necessity to, way, to the way the masters operate. Lahiri Mahashaya, who is the guru on the left as you face it in the middle of the cross there, was a, an avatar also. He was a fully realized master. He was a Christ, just as Jesus Christ was. He worked as a government accountant his entire life. He lived in the city of uh, Benares. He actually had a wife and two sons. Um, he was initiated in the Himalayas by his Guru Babaji, who's at the top of the cross behind us. And then he went back and he meditated. And he sat in his living room and he quickly retired from his government job. And he, and, and he just began to sit in his living room meditating virtually 24 hours a day. And day and night, People would come and sit at his feet and gradually he would teach them Kriya Yoga. He forbade his disciples to speak of their discipleship or their spiritual practices for reasons that are not obvious to me, but it wasn't, it was not, he, he felt it was important not to bring it out yet to the light of day. He formed no organizations. He, 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 he did nothing outward, but he just meditated and then initiated others and had a very mild personality. His, uh, it didn't mean that he didn't have the same power, but the particular role that he had to play was to be, as another saint described him, a kitten in the mouth of Divine Mother. The Divine Mother would just come and pick him up by the scruff of the neck and put him wherever he needed to be. And he, he just lived this example of complete um, surrender to the Divine Will, absolutely uncompromising in his commitment. At one point, his wife became um, concerned that, she, that he wasn't putting enough energy into the family. This is the story told in Autobiography of a Yogi. And she was concerned that he wasn't working anymore and they wouldn't have any money and how are they going to provide for themselves. And Lahiri Mahashaya's response was to dematerialize right in front of her eyes. But here she was sort of complaining about his behavior and all of a sudden he just disappeared. And she became suddenly, she suddenly realized that, of course, he was no ordinary mortal and she was just treating him like an ordinary human husband. And when, and she suddenly begged his forgiveness and he appeared on, uh, levitating on the roof, on the ceiling of the room. And then he, he declared to her, he said, don't you understand, you know, that 
you're just you're appealing to me, but I am I am nothing but the infinite spirit. You are nothing but the infinite spirit. What can what can you be thinking? And she um, repented deeply of her misunderstanding, and Lahiri assured her that one of his disciples would provide for the family, which they did. So one of the disciples left them a large sum of money, and the family was always taken care of because you know it wasn't right for it, for them to starve. It wasn't destined. But that was his energy. And now, then you have Jesus, you know, who goes into the Jerusalem temple and declares that my father's house is not a house of commerce. And the story is told that he picks up a whip and he drives all the business people and the money changers and all the, that worldly energy. He, just, he, he brutally drives them out of the place. And he's constantly mocking the priests and, and uh, bringing them to the point of tremendous anger several times in the Bible, and those are just instances that are reported, they speak of the anger of the people who were powerful. They were going to pick up stones and stone him one day for blaspheming. And he says very quietly, he says, for what good thing? You know, what, for what good thing are you going to stone me? I've healed the sick. I've helped you in so many ways. I mean, these are all people, they all were together. For which of these good deeds are you going to stone me? You see how courageous and audacious that personality is. And then he spoke repeatedly of his own role as the Savior. He, he wanted people's energy to be directed to him, but through him. So we have to really deeply understand you know, what this power is. And the way Swami puts it, it's so simple, is that Jesus never allowed himself to be praised when someone even called him good, good master. He said, why do you call me good? He said, don't the scriptures say that we all are gods? And when, when people would try to personalize and make it too particular in him, he would always demur. You know, Paramahansa Yogananda was just the same way. We see the same thing in Swami Kriyananda. It's a very interesting balance between this impersonal understanding that they are the representation. I, I and my father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the father. That doesn't sound like egoic humility, certainly. But what he's talking about, he's just stating a simple fact. And, and it's not an, an egoic fact because there's no ego to claim it. That's what's confusing to us. You know, when we think to say such a thing, we would, we would say it with a little bit of pride. See what a beautiful channel I am of the infinite? There's an interesting statement in the end of this book here where he was talking about um, the concept of pride. He was quoting Ramakrishna was a saint of the last of the 1800s but he was talking about how worldly pride is really not that much of a danger to us because everything in the external world rises and falls and we can become extremely proud because we're very popular we're very beautiful or whatever it might be i remember i saw a little documentary about mary pickford who was a movie star what in the silent era and then beyond that and and all the movies ever, she was just an adorable woman, you know, just as cute as she could be and pretty and always dressed up and looking so nice. And then, of course, they show her at the end of her life. She's 90 or something like that, and she's all shriveled up, and she's still making some attempt to look like that cute little movie star that she was, but it was a little garish. And whatever pride she had in her beauty, which I'm sure was considerable, was just time took care of it. 
And how many, you know, powerful and wealthy people, just time passes and whatever it was that you were so committed to, it just is taken away from you. But then Ramakrishna warns, he said, but spiritual pride is something else. Because if we become egoically proud of the extent to which we have overcome the ego, he said, that's something really to be proud about. That's a real accomplishment. And that's accomplish accomplishment that can endure. So if we allow ourselves to let spiritual pride come in, he said it can take a very long time to get over that. You know, here's an interesting fact that Master said. He said the karma for spiritual pride is that, it, that you get, end up getting involved in a false teaching. You know, so you see people sometimes who are just so committed to things that, that are just not going to work for them and, and just fall apart. That's, that's if you're very proud of your spirituality, then you, you get to, you lose your discrimination. And so you end up being, going places where you really wouldn't want to go. And then your spirituality unravels and gradually you get over the karma of it. So the masters, and, and Swami writes about this, the masters have to live out for us a perfect example. And so I was starting to say that Master himself, Yogananda himself, he never took any personal credit. He often deferred both to his Guru Sri Teshwar and to Babaji, even though he was so clearly, he had the complete role of being the, the Guru for all, and he acted that role without the slightest hesitation. But we have this thought that he was always walking around declaring himself the Guru, and everybody was declaring him the Guru, and there was this big sort of constant affirmation of his role, but it wasn't so at all. He would always give the credit to God. As Swamiji says, even when people would touch his feet, which is the Indian tradition for anyone that you respect, your parents, even not just your guru, he would always lift his, his hand like this, meaning that I direct the energy that you're giving to me, I, I give it on to the infinite. You'll often see Swamiji do that. Now, because he lives in India, people are always touching his feet, and he always just passes the energy onward. This energy doesn't belong to me. The beautiful image that Swami makes is that, that we think of each one of us as we're like a funnel, you know, and the small point is the personification in human form. But behind that, there's just this opening out to the infinite. And that doesn't make the small opening that we perceive any less um, beautiful or perfect or defined. But, but we realize that we're looking at a window that goes on to the infant, because that's how the masters feel, feel themselves. It, it doesn't take any effort for them to not accept this personal adulation, because there's no person upon whom to, to paste it. Like Yogananda put it, he said, how can, be, how can there be humility when there is no sense of self? At the same time, they're entirely conscious of the fact that, 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 the, that the full power of the infinite is flowing through them and that they have this God-given, um, this ordained, anointed power that they can forgive sins, they can liberate us from our delusions, and they, and they recognize that they have to pull the individual's devotion and attention <clears throat> into a focus in that particular personality, especially, of course, when Jesus was living, but even since that time also, because the teaching remains true. Because otherwise, it's for our sake, you see. 
Otherwise, our devotion remains too diverse and it never activates this powerful element of feeling because it's, it's feeling that really motivates us. I mean, think about it. Everything we do, we do because we want to do it. It's, it's just a simple fact. We never, people really never do anything that they don't want to do. They can be forced for a while, but you'll decide to do it because you, you want to do it, because if you don't do it, somebody's going to do something to you. But there's always this element. And above all, when we feel inspired, uplifted, a feeling of love, a feeling of, of possibility, you know, there's this, this great draw. And, and what we're working with, there, there's, the chapter here is called Who Saves, or what, you know, God is the one who saves. And what does he save us from? You know, there's that conversation that you have when you meet people who call themselves Christians. Uh, one woman, and I, she traveled alone uh, around the country or around the world. She was a young, attractive woman, and somebody asked her, well, weren't you troubled sometimes by people, um, you know, trying to have your company when you didn't want their company? And she said, no, she said, I just had a three-word protection. And they said, what was that? I would just ask them, are you saved? <laughs> and that would generally end the conversation very quickly because, of course, what follows is that fanatical effort to convert you to it. And, but Swami just asked the question, of course, are you saved from what? So what that, in the dogmatism of uh, Christianity, what that's become is that because Jesus died for our sins, we're saved from eternal hell. Well, Swami's writing in here about how that's just a thought that doesn't hold water much anymore. Um, because, and he talks a great deal at the end here, as he's talked all through the book, about how all the expansive discoveries of science and about the nature of the cosmos and the nature of the universe, and it's just very hard to believe in this sort of down below the earth somewhere, there's this hellish place where the devil actually operates and tortures people, and then up somewhere above there's this beautiful place. And just all of those physical images upon which all this dogmatism is built, that we're so expansive in our education and our thinking now, it's just very hard to hold to those thoughts. And also this whole idea of being eternally damned, <clears throat> Swami puts it so simply, how can you have an infinite result from a finite cause? You know, just an individual does something that's declared a sin and then forever after you're damned? Also, what a, a deeply unattractive concept of God. Many people who've walked into this place have walked in as atheists, and far from being alarmed by that, I generally commend them for it, because almost always what they have rejected is somebody's really awful explanation of God that any thinking person would not want to have anything to do with. But again, as I've said a number of times through this, <clears throat> people intuitively understand the power and the blessing of our relationship to Christ and the power of Jesus in our lives, and yet we're caught by these teachings that just don't hold up anymore. And yet, human nature is what it is, and we have to make these things less abstract. We need to make relationships. That's what really moves us, isn't it? When the heart is touched, and then there's this inward drawing. And, and what Swamiji writes here is, he, he, he goes at great length, and those of you who are very devoted to families and progeny, you probably won't like these pages very much. Swami sort of laughed a little bit when he wrote them. 
But he just talked about how we just get on this wheel of reincarnation and this tremendous longing we have for a mate, which is just one of these deeply God-implanted movements. And we try so hard to find some person with whom we can live, and then we create children, and then we begin to live through those children, and then those children have children, and we become so proud of those children, and finally we sit at the center of some great clan, then we, we, we're, we're so proud of all that we've created. And Master said, when you die, a lot of times you're just born right back into these same families. I mean, many people, they'll look at their daughter or something, and they'll recognize their grandmother. And often the, the truth of the matter is, it really is. Because the thought form has just come, you know, this is who I am, this is what I want, and, and these samskars are implanted deep within us, and we become restless when we go to the, the heavenly realms, which do exist on a vibrational, not a physical level. We just become restless to be part of all that again. And the problem with it, it's not that it's sinful or evil, the problem with it is just far more sensible. It just doesn't fulfill us. That's why we keep doing it again and again, not because it's so wonderful, but because it never quite really makes it. Not because it's awful either, but it's just this longing within us for some, some um, uh, connectedness, some fulfilling of this inherent feeling that we have within us that there has to be something more. This intuitively planted understanding that bliss is our true nature and that there's something fundamentally missing. And we, we can live through this over and over again, and we do. See how many times in even one incarnation, you know, we switch our goals. Our go First we want to do this, then we want to do that, then we try this thing, now this one is going to work. And it's not as if we, we shouldn't. We have to act. We have to act according to our own nature. Merely to stop acting, as the Bhagavad Gita says, doesn't take us anywhere. We have to keep going through these experiences. And Swamiji writes, he was speaking specifically of the Virgin Mary and whether or not she had other children afterwards, um, that the purity is not in whether or not you, you are physically a virgin. He points out that Paramahansa Yogananda's mother, who she declared, Yogananda declares, as he put it, it was the Divine Mother herself. In other words, his mother was a very highly advanced soul. She had eight children. And they're all produced, as Swami writes, in the usual manner, you know. It's a question of whether or not we define our happiness by that experience and whether or not we are attached to that experience. It's not a question of whether we live through it. The masters themselves go through all the stages of this life. That's what Swami's writing here. They live through all the stages of life, but inwardly their consciousness never identifies with what they're living through. And even more profoundly, they never define their happiness as coming from that source. You see how different that is? Now, the, the odd thing that people have to really appreciate, which is a little tricky in yoga at the beginning, is that doesn't make you less involved or less happy. What you see is people who are trying to be detached. Imagine that the way you are detached is that you hold your energy back, that you are uncommitted. To be uncommitted is not the same as being detached. To be uncommitted is almost a great sign of your attachment because it's the fear of getting involved. It's the fear of really opening yourself to the feelings of your heart for the fear that you won't be able to control them. But that just simply means that you're controlled by them already because they're already dictating your behavior. 
Swamiji himself said it's far better, he said, to be over-emotional, to be totally involved, than it is to be too self-censoring. Because if we're self-censoring, for one thing, all our energy is directed toward ourself in a constant state of anxiety about our own state of consciousness. And self-realization, above all, is self-forgetfulness. It's expanding the sense of self to include, ultimately, the whole, whole of creation. There's no point at which our sense of self actually ends. It's all just self-defined. Oh, I'm loyal to my family and not my neighbors. And I'm loyal to my family and my neighborhood. This was um, on, on Sunday, Sabina read one of Master's poems that was about, you know, teach me to have universal love. And you read it and it's sort of confusing. Let me, Master actually says, let me love my neighbors more than my family. Let me love my city more than my neighbors. Let me love my country more than my city. And he, he doesn't mean that you just keep scorning the ones that were close to you. In fact, it, exactly the opposite is true. If you can't take care of those who are the closest to you, if you can't really discipline your energies to be appropriate and loving to those who are close to you, we're just kidding ourselves to think that we have a more universal form of love than that. In fact, Master went so far as to say you can't live, win the love of God unless you can win the love of at least one person in your life. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? In other words, it's, you can't just fool yourself in your mind. It has to be really acted out in a divine way. But what he meant was, first, it's easier. For example, you give birth to the baby, and then there's that instinctive desire to love and protect it. Or you have a very a deep longing to have a beloved, and somebody's attractive to you, and you have all that sexual magnetism and that hope of a future together. And it's natural to love there. But what he wants us to understand is that once we experience the expansion of consciousness to love another, that there is no limit to that. Because what we discover is, is not this two forces connecting, but within ourselves we begin to discover that we are simply the fountainhead of love itself. And that everyone that we meet has the same divinity within them. And so where is the boundary? And you see, this is what the masters come to illustrate by the, the power of their consciousness. In the book I wrote about Swamiji, I tell many stories just about how the, re, the most remarkable way he relates to, to people who, who you would think of as strangers. There's nobody who's a stranger to him. I mean, literally. He'll just look at a person and what he'll see is he'll see, as he put it himself, the same presence of God whom I already love. You know, just manifested through another funnel, so to speak, or another flame of uh, the little uh, master uses the image of the individual flames of gas, little jets of gas on a gas burner, but it all is the same gas that's burning. It just looks like individual jets. Where do you draw the line in all of that? But we have this endless sort of desire to see if we can find the fulfillment, which is only can only be found in the kingdom of God within, through all these external actions. And so the, the masters come and live among us. And from time to time, if we have very good karma, we have the incarnation to be in proximity, a relatively close proximity to a great master. And if not, we have the karma to be drawn to those who can teach us about him. You know, Christianity was created primarily by Paul, who never even met Jesus himself. And he converted everyone just by the power of his own 
um, inner understanding of the truth of what yoga, of what Jesus had taught to the world. And so the master brings that power. He, he's the, the point of the funnel where the infinite is there and through that funnel, this vibration of deep understanding flows. And it's not enough for us to stand back and say, oh yes, there's one over there. You know, we have to also put ourselves into a very direct relationship with it for the simple reason that the only, that the medium we have to escape from the ego is the ego, and the ego is an unreliable tool. I was observing in myself, it's, it's a very small thing, but I was, I was thinking about some people in my life that I'm fond of. I may have mentioned this to you. Not people I know well. Good people, intelligent, interesting, but I have to be perfectly honest, not really all that nice, rather snobby and um, inconsiderate and not always kind in their responses to life. And I watched myself sort of projecting upon them virtues they don't have. And the only reason I was doing it is, is because in some small way I've decided they're my people. And because they're my people, then therefore they must be good people. Because after all, they're my people. You know? And it was just, there was no basis for it. There was absolutely no basis for it. It was just the ego projecting itself out, wanting things to look good. Isn't that how people are? This is my home, this is my city, this is my... When I first went to Europe, I was in my 30s before I ever had a passport, and I left the country for the first time, and we went to Florence, we went to Rome, and I encountered... First of all, I met... I was in cultures that had a history. I never really realized um, how free we are in America because we have no history. There's, we have so little to look back to, and what little history we have either is dark with the shame of slavery or the American Indians who were here before us, we just totally obliterated them. So we, we, just, we have a very short history and there was very little here. So we don't, have, we don't come from this great tradition of enormous accomplishment. So we have, we're a very, very forward-looking country. In fact, um, it's, it's true to say that the founding of America was part of this um, process of the self-realization because it was here in this country that Yogananda came and the movement of self-realization was planted because it could be planted in this country. An entirely new expression of religion could be planted because we have so little behind us. We just sort of imagine we can do anything. Well, I went to Florence, I went to Rome, Florence especially, and I encountered all this pride in being a Florentine. And it was pride because Michelangelo had been there, Leonardo da Vinci had been there. And I mean, my American mind thought, well, what does that have to do with you? You know, what have you done? You haven't done anything. You just have an address here. You know, the, the, the accomplishments of those people are not your accomplishments. But it was like, you know, we're, Flo we're from Florence and we're the city of. And there was all this in this great projection of, of I have value because these things are mine. Just the ego, just desperately reaching out for some little little tidbit or something. And when I went to India, it was even more so, because India is so ancient. And you sort of settle into this, I'm part of this culture, and that gives me some kind of special rights. I mean, I think there's a great deal that, about India that's absolutely thrilling and uniquely so. But no one owns it unless they make it their own consciousness. But the masters have to come and just break down these realities. And it's, it, it is literally, whether we accept it or not, someone asked, Swamiji was talking about 
the spiritual need to have a guru, that you must have help. And this man came and said, well, I don't think I need a guru. And Swami says, well, you're right then, you don't. <laughs> you know, because right now what you're doing, you don't need a guru to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And at the point at which you reach the limit of what you can do with your own mind and your own ego, then at that point you'll need a guru. But you, if you're not interested in learning what a guru can teach you, then you obviously don't need one. So it's not, this is not about dogma. This is about, as Swamiji says, what Yogananda came was to reestablish a little common sense into Christianity. Because so much of the teaching, as I was saying, has just diverged so far from common sense that people are not allowed to. And the, the, church has, the churches have chosen their institutional power and they have wanted to make themselves the instrument through which salvation is achieved. You know, the dogmatically declared proper ceremonies and the Pujaris in India have the same game going because his master said it's ignorance is pretty much 50-50 east and west, but we're just talking about Christianity now. The churches have wanted to make themselves the conduit, but an institution cannot be the conduit. It has to be a living, personal consciousness. I mean, that's common sense, isn't it? You know, you don't, and, and we, have, we always fight that in, I, I sort of look at this building in this place, because Ananda has now progressed to the point where we look like something. When I started, we didn't look like anything. We were just a bunch of people on bare land, living with very little money. And at least it looked like a revolution. It looked like a failed revolution for a long time, but at least it looked like we were trying to do something else. Prosperity, to the extremely minute extent that we have it, we joke now that we're just going bankrupt at a much higher level than we used to. You know, now a disaster costs us $100,000. It used to cost us 2000 but, uh, I mean, you know, big learn we call it learning experiences, you know, you try to do something. But, uh, because now we've had to get a little bit organized. And I'll have people come here and then they'll say to me, I don't like to, I don't want to be part of any organized group. And I sort of think to myself, what are they trying to say to me? And it is true that we do gather together, but, but, if you don't want to have energy from somewhere, then you're doomed to just have the energy that you have. We have to draw energy from somewhere. And, and until we realize that, you don't need it. As long as you're content with what you can generate yourself, then that's fine. But that's what Jesus was doing. That's what Jesus was saying. You know, I am the way, I am the truth. No one comes unto the Father except through me. He wasn't speaking of Jesus himself, but in a way he was. It's a peculiar, it was a peculiar dual meaning. What he really meant was, you must realize the Christ consciousness which I represent. I am the manifestation of the Christ consciousness, and you must experience the Christ consciousness to achieve your divine goal. But he also meant, I will help you. And because I have that consciousness, if you attune yourself to me, you will understand what that consciousness is. You see, this is what people intuitively experience, however they describe it, and however even dogmatically it ends up being. But they understand that something happens to them when they form this intimate relationship with Christ that they do not have without that relationship. And even aside from all the aberrations that follow, it's true. And Swamiji writes at the end of this book, he said, I hope all this, you know, 
discussion in a philosophical way doesn't take you away from that fundamental deep relationship because that's what you have to have in order to, to do this. And now we're coming into Christmas time and on Saturday we're going to meditate all day and it's, you know, the, the power and the presence of Jesus is what we're really t- tuning into. And Swamiji writes and really suggests in such a sweet way, he said, just think of this in the most intimate terms that you can think of it. Don't talk about he. Don't even talk about, you know, just talk about you. Just just speak to Christ or to whatever form of God is inspiring to you in the most personal way that you can allow yourself to do. And and then um, everything else follows, actually, is what is what really happens. But you think of it not as ending with the person of Jesus, but beginning with the person of Jesus. This is what we're working with. Swamiji talks about how all of creation... All of creation is manifested from the inside out, is how he says, that, that everything in nature grows from the center outward. In, in human creation, we gather things together and build it. You know, right now, our whole altar is taken apart, and all you see is the little pieces of what's going to end up being this beautiful, extre- extremely beautiful Christmas altar. And they're gathering all the pieces together and... and uh, they'll they'll put them up there and then there'll be a hole. The way God creates is you have an acorn. And within that acorn is the potential to have an oak tree. And God doesn't gather together all the parts of the oak tree and put it together. It's that the acorn itself just begins to expand its consciousness and manifest. And so it is for each one of us. The, the, the seed reality within us is that spark of divinity, is that, that Christ awareness, that knowledge of ourselves as one with the infinite. And the, the course of our many lifetimes is just like that little acorn. Jesus used the, sample, the example of the mustard seed. You know, if you have the faith even as small as a mustard seed, it gradually grows out like that. Because it is our own inner nature. And the, the more and more we begin to understand who we are, and Jesus in the Bible put it so simply, if you receive him, if you receive that the existence of that vibration through the attunement of the consciousness of one who has it, then it just begins to swell up within us. And, it, and literally, as it expands, it just simply pushes. It cracks the shell of the ego, and the ego dissolves all around it. And we find ourselves to be that, um, that infinite. Master had that marvelous statement that spirit is center everywhere, and circumference nowhere. And Ramana Maharshi, I think it was, who said to one of his disciples, she'd cross the whole world to see him. You've traveled, I've traveled so far to see you. He said, no, he said, you haven't moved. It's the world that has moved around you. What that means is wherever we're standing, there's always the central point of our own consciousness. Isn't that so? It is the only constant in all of creation, in fact. And so the, the, the same question is just over and over again. Who am I? What is this reality? What are the limits of my actual consciousness? And how can I experience them? I mean, not everyone is driven this way. This was, as I look back on my own life, you know, as a a little Jewish girl growing up first in Texas then in Southern California, especially in the early years when I ended up at Ananda and just being devoted to God and this Hindu path and this Indian path, it just was like 
from the moon. I didn't know where it had come from. It just seemed so uh, just alien. I mean, it appeared alien. It didn't feel alien, but it was just so far outside. But when I looked back over the course of my life, I had the most interesting realization that I had always, from my earliest memories, literally, I had always had exactly the same inner impulses. I had changed the form of how I thought those, those impulses could be realized, but the impulses had never changed, and it was simply this. I felt um, confined. I just felt confined. I felt limited in so many different ways, and there was always this feeling of confinement, and there was this deep longing to expand, and expand into, into bliss, expand into love, not expand into power over others, but always just this, it was just the acorn. There was just a very strong sense of being an acorn that had a bigger destiny, but never quite figuring out where that acorn could actually uh, realize who it was meant to be. And as time passed, and this was, I just threw my teens, you know, in one um, external possibility after another in my life just sort of came and went and came and went. Obviously, you can't do very much before you're 20 years old. By the time I was 20, was, I was established on the spiritual path. But still, it was, that was the process in microcosm in a very sort of speeded up way that there was this inner desire for that tree to bloom and nobody was teaching me where to plant it and how to water it. And you see, that's what the masters do. They, they live in this world and they show us how to walk. That's why when we sing, there's a beautiful song in the oratorio, This is my son, and it's, the, it's a put to music the words that when John the Baptist, when Jesus allowed John the Baptist to anoint him, there, the heavens opened and all heard the voice of God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. All that um, he, uh, how does, what are the words? Yes, not but the true light. And then the last words are, um, heed well his words, the way he shows is my way. All who would find the truth, walk where he leads. It's just such a magnificent phrase, walk where he leads. Now, one of the, but you only do that if you want to. That's what's so sweet about it, really. One of the uh, mysteries of the Bible that Swamiji also addresses here is this mystery of the, what they call the, eight, the missing 18 years. And Swamiji, at the end of this book, gives really convincing facts for what is becoming to be accepted. Number one, that those years were removed from the Bible. Because first he starts describing, it's very interesting, when the, the last part of Jesus' life before he disappears in the Bible is he's 12 years old. His parents take him to Jerusalem for the Passover. They, they're, they're traveling in a group. They leave the city. Mary and Joseph, as parents, think that he is somewhere in the group. And they're a day and a half or two days out from the city before they realize that the child is 12 years old and he's not with them. And they become panic-stricken and race back to Jerusalem to find him. And they find him sitting 
in the uh, temple there, there were many different places where rabbis could go and sit and they could teach. And it was a very sort of hearty give and take situation. They find Jesus sitting in one of the, the rabbi's chairs, just instructing, you know, conversing and instructing. And the parents are like, how could you just stay behind? What about us? And he scolds his parents. Why are you coming to get me? Don't you know I have to be about my father's business? It's really quite remarkable, and it also indicates a lot more about Jesus' actual relationship to his parents and the sort of um, normalcy of what was going on in his life. Now, the parents, too, have to play the role. It's all part of acting out a regular life. And, what, and uh, then, then there's nothing else in the Bible until Jesus appears at the age of 30. He comes back a full-grown man, undertakes his mission, and there's nothing in the middle. Swami tells us in here that, um, that one of the Shankaracharyas in India, there's several individuals who more or less have the position that would be equivalent to the Pope in the Christian church, the Catholic church. I mean, they have that much respect. They don't have that much worldly position, but they have that much respect. And one of those men spoke personally to Swamiji about a document that he saw of a certain council of Con Constantinople at a certain point in the church history in which this was a record of that council and it was a discussion of the fact that during those 18 years that Jesus left his parents' home very soon after that incident at the age of 12 and he went to India. He went to the mountains of Tibet. And then Swami also gives the documented story from Nicholas Rorick and um, several others of of documents in certain mon in a certain monastery in Tibet that talk about this soul who was the av avatar for the people of Israel who came and studied with the Himalayan masters there and did his sadhana and had his his teaching and then returned to carry out his mission because that's what he was born to do and it was all known among the disciples because think about it how could it not be known do you think that none of the disciples ever asked Jesus, hey, where were you? Do you think that Jesus never was forthcoming about his, that whole period of his life? It doesn't make the slightest bit of sense. But what happened was, it was a descending age. And Swami writes about that too. The age was getting darker and darker. And there was this, and it was turning into a religion. It was ceasing to be spirituality and it was turning into a religion. And they wanted to get everything organized. And the people who were in charge of the religion had a desire for power, and power is power over others. And you start thinking about controlling people and having them all fall into line, and the church is wanting to draw all the energy into a focus in itself. And so at this council, there's this discussion that it didn't look good for Jesus to have had to go off and learn. Because after all, he was the Son of God. He should already know everything. They were already begun to lose what any of this actually meant. And, and in the transcript, it says the priests are having this discussion, and someone in the audience said, well, the disciples knew that he had gone to India to study with the masters there, and it didn't hurt their faith. If it didn't hurt their faith, why do we think it would hurt ours? Isn't this the discussion? Isn't it just institutions, just like you hear it all the time, that the institutional ego gets involved, and they start thinking they have to protect everyone from these other you know, that these people can't handle it and it all has to be filtered and information has to be modified and controlled. And, but what it really is, is that those who are in institutional power want people to be 
ignorant. They want to create ways in which people are not allowed to have the freedom to think for themselves. That's just self-perpetuating. I mean, in a position of that I'm in where I have to try to sometimes herd this wonderful group of cats in some direction or another, you know, you can see how tempting it is. We joke about it sometimes. Let's have a little more dogmatism, a little more guilt, that maybe people cooperate. We won't have to deal with them so much as individuals, you know. Of course, we're just joking. But you can just see, again, you can just see how human nature, think about it in your own life. Don't you just sometimes just want people to do what you want? And are we, are we above, you know, using phrases like, I'm not going to give you a reason, you're going to do it because I said so. I mean, that's just the Catholic Church, that is just in a big scale, you know, of just really wanting it to happen that way. But the fact of the matter is, and then Yogananda just stated it explicitly, that there's an interrelationship between these masters and the three wise men from the East were the gurus of this line, and Jesus was intimately connected with them, and when he grew to his point of independence, then they throw in this absolutely wonderful extra thing, which is that Joseph and Mary wanted him to get married. And he didn't want to get married, so he ran away from home. I mean, that just comes in like out of the blue. You just don't know where to put that. Because there's so many myths. See, it's all taken out of normal life. But the masters live our lives with the right consciousness. So he was faced with this fact, which is his mother and father and it's, it's an interesting reality with Mary because Mary self-evidently was a great soul. I mean, look at all these centuries, how many times there have been these appearances of Mary and look at the tremendous effect. You, know, you can tell by the fruits. Look at the tremendous effect devotion to the Virgin Mary has had on people's consciousness and, and how many miraculous and beautiful things have, been happen, have come from these um, appearances of Mary. And yet at the same time, there they were. They were acting out this little drama. And, and Swami just states this, and this is also what Yogananda says, just true. And this is what the documents in Tibet say, that this young, relatively young man fled his family home because he did not want to fall in with their plans. He just went off on this divine quest. So what he's showing us is how we should live. And Swamiji writes in the book there that sooner or later, in your quest for God, you have to disappoint the expectations of others because only a few people really have the courage to actually back you in your spiritual search. He tells the story of Shankar, uh, Shankaracharya, the Adi Shankaracharya, the first one. He was, I think, six, as if I'm not wrong, and he wanted to leave home, go to the Himalayas. He had this great destiny. He's a great spiritual soul. And his mother, of course, couldn't bear the thought of this little six-year-old boy walking away. So he jumped into a pool that was populated by alligators, and he allowed one of the alligators to, to get a grip on him. And then he said to my mother, Well, mother, you're either going to lose me to the Himalayas or you're going to lose me to this alligator. Which do you prefer? Oh, please, my son. <laughs> and then he was able to escape from the alligator, and then with his mother's blessings, he left home. And he went to the Himalayas, but his consciousness was fully formed. Children are not really children. They're just, I mean, they're not young. They just have young bodies. And Shankaracharya only lived till he was 33, so he had to get started early. And he went back to his mother when his mother died. He went back to help his mother at her death, even though he'd left her so young. Amazing relationships, isn't it? Okay, so Jesus had that. His family wanted to marry him. He would have no part of it. 
So we ran off to the Himalayas. You see how much more instructive that is? Because then you, you actually have a picture of what the spiritual path is like instead of having these two-dimensional realities. This is one of the reasons I wrote the book I wrote about Swamiji, because having lived with such a great soul so closely as many people have, you see it really acted out. What do you do when someone actually takes money that belongs to you? I mean, it's a very real question. What do you do if a friend betrays you? What do you do if someone sues you in court? What do you do if um, you're working on a project and you know, you're faced with foreclosure of your property. I mean, this is how we really live. What do you do when your mother wants you to do something that you don't think you ought to do? The masters have to walk through that exact path that we walk through to really show us how it's done. And this whole period, and, and also Jesus, here he is. He's, you know, he's a great soul, but he goes to the feet of the masters to learn. Autobiography of a yogi is all about Yogananda's relationship with his guru, Sri Yukteswar, and these years of intensive training and this tremendous effort he put forward to realize God. Because all of that was taken out of the Bible, we don't have anything. We have him as a little boy, and then we have him dying for our sins, and we're supposed to believe in him. But we don't have anything in the middle that really tells us what does it really look like to walk where he walked. Where did he walk? You know, he walked right up to the, onto the cross, but gee, we have a lot of time in between and most of us are not, you know, looking forward or expecting to be crucified. And that's the only place we're allowed to walk with him because we don't know he left his home and went to the Himalayas and did intensive sadhana and found himself a guru and discipled himself to that and practiced that reality and came back and bowed at the feet of John the Baptist. You know, there's just like so many parts of it. It would be glorious to have the whole story. Maybe someday in one of those buried urns, they'll actually find it, find something really worth having. It would be wonderful. I'm going to take just a short break, and then we'll go on. Let's just take five minutes, okay? Coming, we have a great set of programs, and so don't miss any of them. So don't miss any of them. <laughs> Meditation on Saturday starts at 10. If you're not experienced and you think it's too long to go till 6, please come at 10, and don't schedule yourself to have to be anywhere else, because you may surprise yourself. And if you come later or have promised to be somewhere else, you can be disappointed when you realize that you can really enjoy it. It's a glorious day, and I highly recommend it. Um, let's see. Um, I was just asked a question, um, three questions at the break. Um, one of them was the question, if, if people keep incarnating in the same families or the same situations, is that why prejudices perpetuate because people don't have any other experience. It was a very good question. I think yes, probably to a certain extent that's true. Pride of family and so on. On the other side, Master said something very charming. It's delightful to think about. If you're a white person who hates black people and is always thinking about hating black people, then you get to be a black person. But because you're very prejudiced, then you hate white people. <laughs> and then you sometimes just bounce back and forth. And that's one of the ways that you do actually get experience. But I think also just being born into the same family, holding on to the same experiences, being in the same culture just over and over again, would, you know, these frozen conditions. But, but a lot of times the mindset is to be prejudiced and narrow and dogmatic, so whichever one is yours is the one you love or, or think is the best. Swamiji always tells about the time his father brought to his three sons three little presents 
little cars or airplane, model airplanes or something. And the boys immediately started fighting because each one thought theirs was the best. And they had an argument about which one was the best. The father came in and said, oh, I gave you the wrong ones. And he switched them around, you know. <laughs> and then they each still felt that the one they had was the best. I mean, Swami just told the story but because of the folly of the ego. Um, the other question I was asked was just to, to be more clear about what the concept of attunement is. Because it's a word we use a lot, and especially it's, it's a very important word. What attunement is in this context, thinking about Jesus, receiving him is about being attuned to him. What we're dealing with is, what we're really trying to get in tune with is we're trying to get in tune with the higher dimension of our own nature. And it's like we're trying to tune ourselves up, if you know what I mean. Because thoughts are, are, are universal. Master said that phrase, and it's an incredibly important phrase. Thoughts are not individual. Thoughts are universal. We don't create what we think. We tune in to realities that are there, and we become um, influenced by those thought forms. There's just states of consciousness that exist, and we become a... a like a, we're, we're like a radio, and we, we move the dial along, and we, we catch a particular sound. You can change the dial, and you know on the radio, you'll just hear all these different dimensions of reality all being expressed, sports or music or talk or this or that. And you just move the dial, and you get one. You move the dial, you get another. You move the dial. Well, that's exactly what's going on with our inner magnetism which is the wavelength that we have habituated ourselves to be on, is like that's the where we're set on that dial. And you know, that varies. Sometimes you get very positive, you get a very positive attitude about things, and then you start attracting to yourself positive ideas, positive experiences, positive feelings, and then something will happen and you'll suddenly feel discouraged. And then all of a sudden, all your thoughts will encourage you to feel discouraged. The whole... Um, movement of that DVD that was out last Christmas, the secret, the secret is that you attract whatever vi your vibration is. And so if you change your vibration, you will then attract more of the same. That was the secret that they were saying. It's not that easy, but it is that simple. It's not that easy because we're a, a magnetic field of accumulated thoughts, habits, and desires. I put my hand here in indicating the chakras, which most of you understand. So when we're talking about attunement, what we're trying to do is we're trying to align our own inner energies with the, the superconscious dimension, which is flowing into us all the time. But if we're vibrating contrary to that, it, we don't know it's there. It's just as simple as that. We don't know it's there. Just like... If, if we were talking really, really loud like this and someone came up behind us and was speaking very softly, I mean, we've been in many situations where you're having a whole lot of noise and somebody tries to get your attention and you can't hear them. Or even you do something, you've just committed to doing this certain thing and afterwards it turns out to be such a mess and you say to your friend, why didn't you stop me? Well, I tried to tell you. But you were so locked in to whatever vibration you were on that even when your friend spoke to you, you didn't hear him. I, I mean, I had that experience with a particular friend of mine. I mean, I know exactly what I said to her. I know exactly when I said it. 
and it was to, you know, to warn her about this course of action she was taking, which proved as disastrous as I anticipated. She said, basically said to me, how could you let me have done that? I said, do you remember? Do you remember the place, time, place, and exactly what I said? Nothing. She remembered the conversation. She didn't remember a word of what I'd said to her. I mean, I know that I'm equally at fault. This was just one that I happened to know. Because she wasn't attuned to the level of reality. She was committed to her desires, and she wasn't attuned to the vibration I was saying, and so she literally could not receive it. She was right in front of me. She heard the word. She responded, but she didn't receive any of it. So at all times, the divine is vibrating, and the masters, the gurus especially, because it's their commitment to us. That's why, Matt, when someone said to Master, after I am gone, you know, how will we, how will we survive? And he said, to those who think me near, I will be near. It's a very interesting statement. To those who think me near, I will be near meaning that I'm always there, I'm omnipresent. But those who attune themselves, who put themselves on that vibration, how do you put yourself on that vibration? Well, first of all, you pull your mind away from the things that take you away from it. It's, it's both positive and not positive. I was reading this book early this morning, and you, know, you just it was, it was very early, so it was very quiet, and I was very concentrated on it, and just can feel your whole consciousness just going into what you're reading. Then later, I'm busy doing other things, and I pick up the book, and it has nice words in it, but I just wasn't attuned to it with that same power. I could just feel, feel the difference because my mind was going in lots of other directions. And Swamiji writes in here about all the different ways in which we allow our consciousness simply to be pulled down. We, we dwell on things that affirm um, our material reality and our separateness from God. And the more we dwell on those things, it's not only that it puts us out of sync with more subtle realities. Subtle realities are not attractive to us when we're in that way. I mean, you know, there's a whole bag of chips there in my kitchen. And those chips often look much more attractive to me than the carrots. You know, it's just like it's a particular vibration. I just want the stimulation of those... um, chips instead of the carrots, which are much better for me. I feel much better after I eat the carrots than I do the chips, but I want the chips, right? And it's, it's, it's all common sense. So we have this thought of, oh, shall I drive down the road, you know, listening to the radio, or shall I click over to the CD I have of Swami speaking? And sometimes you put the CD on of Swami speaking and you just can't hear it. You know, it's just, you just can't hear it. It's just, your mind is going in too many directions and there's no attunement with it. So one follows the radio, which puts you even more out of tune. And, and there's no end to that. You can go many, many incarnations that way. That's why all religions, which are not entirely wrong, have these huge, all these things you're supposed to do, all these external behaviors. See, where they, where they break apart is they start thinking that God cares about those external behaviors. That was the conflict between Jesus when he healed on the Sabbath. And he said, of course we can do this on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to help us to be in tune with God by giving us specific ways of disciplining our energies so that we would become on the right wavelength. But if you're on the right, right wavelength, you don't have to deal with these things. The same way when the, they, they, the Pharisees criticized Jesus because his, 
people no longer did all the ritual washing and they didn't fast. We all fast and your people don't fast at all. Jesus basically said, as long as I'm with them. He, didn't, he said it directly. As long as the bridegroom is here, everybody rejoices. After the bridegroom is gone, time enough to fast. Meaning none of those external disciplines were required because in his company, their consciousness was already uplifted and they were in tune. But after he was not with them, then they would have to work more conscientiously. In other words, by, by finding ways to restrict the downward flow of their energy in order to be able to hold it upward. Now, the most powerful way to have your energy upward simply is the power of love and the power of bliss from the knowledge that this is what makes me the most joyful. So I'm, someone once asked Swamiji, how can you tell if you're in tune? He said, by the presence of joy. You know, a joyful state of consciousness is an attuned state of consciousness. It's not defined by anything else. But joy that is not um, easily taken away from you. You know, to be joyful in a hysterical, outward sort of way for a few minutes is not a sign of divine attunement. It's the constancy, a constant undercurrent of joy even in the midst of great difficulties in life. And once we're on the wavelength, then the vibrations of the masters just blend right in with ours and we receive them. And you see, then once you receive it, it just becomes more of the same, isn't it? Because it's when we have these deep experiences that we become hungry for more. And the contrast with other things becomes too acute. But there's many things that we used to have our, our meetings over on California Avenue in a, an office building on the second floor of an office building where Kinko's used to be downstairs, but it's all changed over there now. And across the street where there's now a very nice restaurant, there used to be a nightclub. And uh, sometimes after our programs would let out at 9.30 or 10 o'clock. We, we, our, our office suite was in the back of the building. It was actually, even though, of course, this is a much nicer place, there's noise from the outside here. Whereas there, it was a cinder block room just way in the back, and it was just absolutely dead quiet there all the time. We, we didn't know what was going on in the outside world. I mean, there could have been a nuclear blast, and everyone could have disappeared. We wouldn't have known. We were just buried back up there. So sometimes we'd come out from having really wonderful experiences, especially like Friday night kirtans. Just, you know, we'd just be so uplifted from chanting uh, for all that time. And then you'd come down and there would be like, I remember one night in particular, they turned that club into like a youth club for a while. And I looked over there. First of all, you'd come out, you could actually feel through the sidewalk. You could feel the bass, the pounding bass and the pounding drums. You could dimly hear it. And once I came out and there were hundreds of teenagers all dressed in black, just because that was what they all wore. And they were swarming around that building like ants, just swarming around like this. And honestly, it looked like the mouth of hell to me. You could feel this pounding thing and then all these black figures kind of being drawn into this thing. But of course, they thought they were having a good time. Who can say? They were in tune with that. You know, I wasn't didn't look like a good time to me. That's what they were receiving. And that's, it's just, that's as simple as that. What, what you attune yourself to, that's what you receive. And so that's why all of spiritual practices, including the practice of Kriya and meditation, japa, energization, is just training ourselves again and again and again and again 
both how to do it and to find joy in doing it, to find have it be habitual. And then the other question I was asked was the example of the lives of the saints, especially, but to a certain extent the lives of the masters, this process of overcoming. On Saturday there was a class about St. Francis and about Sir Teresa of Avila, and both of their lives, especially St. Teresa, is very well documented. Francis's life is less well documented, but very well documented of the spiritual effort that she made. St. Teresa of Avila, who was a very great mystic, um, was a wealthy, beautiful woman. You know, she, everybody loved her. She was very, she, she describes herself, of course, probably as much worse than she was. But she was the leader of her group. She could have married anybody that she wanted to. Um, she was very proud of her beauty. She was a high-spirited girl. And then she ends up going into the convent. And the way she tells the story is even for many, many years in the convent, she never really got serious. But she was having divine experiences during that whole period of time, so it's all relative. But we, we work with it on two levels, and attunement is like this too. You work with it in trying as much as possible to stay away from those things that are going to take you away from where you're trying to go, and as much as possible to get into those things that are taking you where you're trying to go. This is why when people say to me, oh, I'm not into groups, I think, well, where are you going to get your energy from? You know, we come together. We don't come together in order to reinforce the dogmas. I, I feel to me, like when people say that to me, forgive me, I say, well, it depends on the group, for heaven's sakes. You go to baseball games, you go to concerts, you go to ballets, you go to restaurants. I mean, what do you mean you're not into groups? You go all kinds of places to have shared experiences. So why would you not come together to have shared uplifting experiences? I mean, yes, you don't want to have dogmatic experiences. You don't want to get trapped in institutions. But we can create where two or more gathered together. I mean, we can create something. And the, the many events that we have over the course, and I'm not just talking about Christmas, but just all the time, it's for one simple reason. Because we, we, when we come together with just a little bit of conscientious care, you know, with the right kind of music, the right singing, the right flow of the service, then what happens is we, we sort of click into something. And you click into it, and on a very deep level, it tells you, oh, yes, this is what I'm seeking. This is what I wanted. And yes, we can have wonderful experiences individually meditating. It's not a substitute one for the other. You have to do all of it. But there's a tremendous power in all of our energy concentrated together. And then that descent of grace comes, and, and you have those moments, and those become like um, beads on a string. And you have this little, you know, sort of restless worldliness in between, but then you just keep putting these beads together. You put enough of those beads together, and the balance shifts. That's just, you're just, you're working with the balance scale. And it's a very, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. If you stay on the path long enough, you'll just begin to see it. It's like an assayer's scale. And the balance is tipped in one way, you know, toward a, a prejudice for worldly things. And, you know, each individual habit has its own balance scale. An attachment to this, a fear of that, an inclination this way. And you just keep trying to not feed the wrong habit too much and simultaneously keep adding the counterweight. And you'll just you'll feel like nothing is happening because as long as it's tipped away from the light, your consciousness keeps rolling down there. But if you keep adding energy to this side and not adding too much to that side, there'll just come a moment when it'll go like that. 
It doesn't go like this. It doesn't split really wide. It's just all of a sudden, as I put it, the marble of your consciousness rolls in the direction you're trying to make it roll. And that's how real change takes place. It's just sort of like just one day, the marble is rolling <laughs> in the right direction. I vividly can recall the, those moments in my life. There were just moments of supreme grace when all of a sudden, the natural inclination has shifted. And then everything is different. And it's just a step by step. And that's why... The example of Jesus going to India, meditating at the feet of the masters, learning the techniques of Kriya and everything else that he learned, learning how to teach and just growing up, just like Master did with Sri Yukteswar, getting his assignment, going back and carrying it out. You know, we're looking in the mirror. That's what we're doing. We're, we're devoting ourselves to the spiritual path. We're learning what we're trying to learn. We're learning how to share it. You know, we're making that effort. We're standing up against even those we love, if necessary, if our divine life is at stake. You know, Swamiji himself, when his father tried to speak against his guru, Swamiji said, you know, our master said to his own father, he said, human birth is something, but divine life is everything. And then master said to his father, if you speak one more word against my guru, I disown you as my father forever. I mean, it was just like, no, don't make me choose because I won't choose you. And that was just a very, you know, small misunderstanding between his father because, in fact, his father became very devoted to Sri Yukteswar. They were guru bhais and good friends. But there was that moment of attachment, his father's attachment to him, where he wanted, you know, he wanted him for himself. But Master just would have none of it. And when they were trying to marry Master off and gave him the horoscope, you know, you have to be married. Master took the horoscope and burned it to ashes and put it in a paper bag. So much for your predictions. I know what I'm going to do with my life. Swami tells, there's the same story in Swami Kriyananda as we have known him when Swami made a suggestion to this young man that he do something. And the man answered, but that would be so disappointing to my mother. Swami said, sooner or later, we all have to disappoint those people. That's not an answer. If it's divinely right, would your mother really want you to sell your soul just to please her if she really loves you? And if she wants you to, is she really your mother? I'm not really attacking mothers. I'm just saying that Jesus said, I come not to bring peace, I come to bring a sword. But you can't go into that without a deep, beautiful, profound relationship with God because otherwise you're just being cruel. And that's the whole and entire beginning, the middle, and the end of everything that Swamiji says about the teachings of Christ. It's within ourselves that Jesus will reach us. It's within ourselves that we call to him, and everything else is extra. It just sort of helps us. All of it is about just getting our minds in order, our understanding in order, our practices in order, so we can have that intimate relationship. So what better time to do it than now, right? Okay, I think that's my whole story. Thank you.